I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I am Phil. And I'm Ruth. And I was nearly Phil. And this week, we'll be covering Valthom. This is our last Mars story. It is our so, last Mars story. That's okay, though, because it goes out with a bang. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that last week wasn't, because that would have been kind of a, well, ending. But this yeah, one's yeah. yeah, yeah. We'd be stuck dwelling gulfs. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to dwell on a gulf. spending a millennia-long sleep. So this was way to ruin the ending, Tim. What? I mean, nobody knows until Tim censor yourself. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, but nobody would have known. And then when the ending came, they'd be like, "Oh, so that's what he meant. How clever!" But instead, you guys. <laughs> oh, you, so you're saying you are foreshadowing instead of spoiling? Exactly. Yeah, that's it's a exactly fine line. The too. word I would use. A very fine line. <laughs> Do you guys want to hear foreshadowing of Captain America the Winter Soldier? Because I can foreshadow the shit out of that. Did you just censor fuck with shit? <laughs> yes. Volthoom was originally published in September 1935 issue of Weird Tales. Alongside a very early Robert Block story, as well as tales by Ethel Helen Cohen, Cohen Arlton Eddy, Edie, who knows, John Scott Douglas, <laughs> and others. There are a bunch of names in that Weird Tales that I don't think we've ever heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of fun. And I think Robert Block was not yet 20. He would have been very young. Yeah, very young. So that's kind of cool. I didn't bother to look up what Robert Block's story it is or where, if it is like his first story or anything, but he's in there just blocking it up. You know, isn't this around the same time that, uh, I guess it was slightly earlier, that Lovecraft's story, which was about Robert Blake, was published? Haunter in Darkness. The Haunter, yeah. Sorry. Who's it? Not The Whisper in Darkness. Haunter of the Dark. Yes. The Shining Trapezohedron. Is this a podcast about H.P. Lovecraft? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. No. Then why are we talking about this? Because of Robert Block. My bad. Is it a podcast about Robert Block? No. No. It's a podcast about Clark Ashton Smith and Volthoom. If we were to do a podcast about Robert Block, what would we call it? Writer's Block? (laughs) (laughs) Phil, go to your room. (laughs) <laughs> no, that was brilliant. <laughs> Join us next week for Writer's Block. <laughs> Not a podcast about H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's up with Volthoom? Edwin just, M. Lillibridge. Let's Sorry. just... Yes, let's just, Lillibridge. Oh my god, I'm <laughs> out of here right now. This is me walking away. So, Volthoom. <laughs> <laughs> that was the door closing. If you didn't get it. <laughs> To a cursory observer, it might have seemed that Bob Haynes and Paul Septimus Chandler had little enough in common other than the predicament of being stranded without funds on an alien world. Haynes, the third assistant pilot of an ether liner, 
had been charged with insubordination by his superiors and had been left behind in Ignar, the commercial metropolis of Mars and the port of all space traffic. The charge against him was wholly a matter of personal spite, but so far, Haynes had not succeeded in finding a new berth, and the month's salary paid to him at parting had been devoured with appalling swiftness by the pirate rates at the Tellurian Hotel. Chandler, a professional writer of interplanetary fiction, had made voyage to Mars to fortify his imaginative talent by a solid groundwork of observation and experience. His money had given out after a few weeks, and fresh supplies expected from his publisher had not yet arrived. The two men, apart from their misfortunes, shared an illimitable curiosity concerning all things Martian. Their thirst for the exotic, their proclivity for wandering into places usually avoided by terrestrials, had drawn them together in spite of obvious differences of temperament, and had made them fast friends. So these guys are by far my favorite Smith protagonists. For the really? Mars stories or just in general? At You're, least are you in talking Mars. global? Okay. Yeah, because okay. they, they're your classic hard bitten whatever men, but they're at least a little yeah, they have a little more interesting background. Yeah, they feel very modern. They feel very modern. I love these opening paragraphs. There's so much yeah. in here that I think is great. Um How how high of a rank is a third assistant pilot. I don't know, but apparently an ether liner takes a lot of pilots. Yeah. Or something. They need at least three, and then each one of those guys has at least three assistants. And you've got like you've got a writer of a fi- writer of interplanetary fiction, and I love this idea that, you know, of the the Lovecraft circle, at least a couple of them might have ended up on Mars if that right. were an option. Just, you know, you can just see um Howard hanging out on Mars and writing Martian versions of his Conan stories. Until his mom calls and he has to run home. <laughs> Zing. He has to take an ether line home. Oh yeah, the ether liner. That's awesome. Yeah. Or ether liner. Yeah. So cool. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's nice to know how people are actually getting around. Yeah, and the name of the city, Ignar, I love. I love the Tellurian Hotel. I love that there yeah. are pirate raids. This whole thing, suddenly Mars feels like a world. That has yeah. something going on other than Ahis and uh, like subterranean monsters. Yeah, um, and even the the fact that these guys met by going to places where hum- Earth people don't go, and they're like the only two Earth people there. So they're like, "Oh, hey, I've seen you at the other place yeah. that Earth people don't go. Let's be friends." And we also learn like little what I guess we can only call snippets of the Martian language. Like they call mm-hmm. old Ignar Ignarvath. And they yeah. call modern Ignar Ignar Luth. Yeah, it's just awesome. Just I just want to go to Ignar and hang out. Like I know. I've got a little guide now. I'm gonna head right for Voth because that's where the action is. You know. And yeah, I love that they have this. Um, it's a real like it feels like a real world building, and this is what we talked about a bit last time. Um, the idea that Mars is kind of a dying planet. You've got these levels of civilization, and it feels like it's out aging itself. Like there's nothing new coming in and taking over it because. Even the modern Ignar has been, like, supposedly been around for a really long time. But the old one has been around since, like, forever. And that's probably... I don't know if we're counting the pre-Ahis that were destroyed by the um, Scarves of Doom or not. But that could be a whole other previous civilization. So, like, you, like, imagine Earth having so many more. I'm totally on board with the Scarves of Doom. The Scarves of Doom. 
we also learn that the Ahis have ruthless temples and that even mm-hmm. though they're very old civilization, they worship the sun and implore it to return every night. So that's that kind of bugged, yeah, kind of bugged me. I'm like, is this just an old custom? Because I'm on board with you know keeping your old customs or whatever. Or are they like, some kind of weirdly bastardized half scientific culture? I like to think that it's an old superstition kept alive, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I kind, I do kind of love the idea that they clang gongs to to tell the sun to come back to them. Yeah, and the gongs ring like all night as our Earth adventurers are wandering around. The gongs are just clanging in the air. Oh, yeah, and then this passage, which I'll just read. Uh, More deeply than in daylight, uh, they, the Ahi, Ahai, apprehended the muffled breathings and hidden torturous movements of a life forever inscrutable to the children of other planets. The void between Earth and Mars had been traversed, but who could cross the evolutionary gulf between Earthmen and Martian? Which is totally, like, a whole subgenre of science fiction is just sort of, like, touched on right there, which is, like, yeah. like Le Guinian anthropological science fiction, where it's, like, you know, we can meet these people, but can we ever really communicate with them? Yeah, or, uh, just the sheer kind of culture shock of an alien yeah. society. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so All done these... in one sentence. Yeah. He just touches on it, and then he's, look, he's got subterranean monsters to get to, so he can't be bothered with all this namby-pamby nonsense. (laughs) Well, there's ten colossal statues of Martian heroes that are looming in warlike attitudes on this bridge that they have to cross to get back to where they're actually staying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's it's a, you you imagine it, like, some kind of awesome cross between, like, a Greek, perhaps a Greek city or something like that, and something more modern. Uh, What happens on that bridge, Tim? In the gloom, it appears that one of these giant statues separates and heads towards them. But it's not a statue. It's just an abnormally tall eye-high and a native Martian. And it approaches them and basically tells them that its master dispatched it to them and there to follow it. And then, you know, Smith totally nods, winks, and <laughs> breaks the fourth wall when the, the adventure writer's like, this sounds like the first chapter of a thriller! Woo! Let's totally do it! Yeah. yeah. They basically say, alright, take us to your leader. Yeah, which I totally, I've, I've totally made Chandler be kind of a Robert Howard person. Yeah, of course. So he brings them, this this abnormally tall Martian brings them to... It's like a little villa or like a little mansion or something, uh-huh. right? And then it, he brings them into this room, and then the room is actually an elevator, and then they all go down, descend down into the way Martian down underground. Like, like, do you think it's as deep as the Gulf from Dweller in the Gulf, or like probably? Not I got that that feeling. Yeah, like yeah, they're they're like, um, okay, this is definitely not quite what we expected, and. They, um, what does they say? Yeah, we must be many miles below the surface, which, you know, that's, that's a big elevator. It's a big elevator. They get to the bottom, and one of them is like, is this maybe Revormos, where the evil <laughs> god Volthum lies? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they think, and it's like, that's a joke to them, right? They're like, oh, yeah. this is clearly not that. But then, yeah. because they're the least subtle adventurers ever, <laughs> one of the Ahis is like, nope, this is Revormos, you nailed it. <laughs> this is the Martian underworld. <laughs> yeah, and then there's this, like, the way that they parse that is awesome, too, because they assume that it's some sort of, like, foolery. Somebody uh, taking on the mantle of Volthum 
to kind of trick the Martians into following him or it. Not just somebody, a potential revolutionist who might call right, himself right. all doom to trick the Ahi psychology. <laughs> Which is also a really cool idea. Yeah. And we also learn the name of the reigning emperor on Mars. Psychor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> that definitely sounds <laughs> 70s-ish. I think 60s it's or not, 70s. Mind pulp. you, not PSY. That's CY. No, no. no yeah. yeah. <laughs> Psychor. <laughs> Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's Keycore. No, I think it's Psychor. Maybe it's Kaikor. Kaikor. I think Psychor. No, it's it's clearly Psycher. But uh, <laughs> I mean, clearly, if anybody knows anything about Mars, it's clearly Psycher. Duh. Uh, I have unrelated to this. Well, somewhat related to this story. I have a running theory that any story, any story that <laughs> includes as a plot point a revolution on Mars, automatically is good. Uh, I have yet to encounter the story that breaks that rule. So this, what this is are the one. stories? What are the, the stories that the, are in this canon? The, can, the canani- canonical yeah. uh, Mars yeah, yeah. Revolution stories: uh, right. Total Recall, the movie, okay. uh, Babylon yeah. Five, the TV show, uh, okay. Red Mars, the book, and right. now Walthum. Okay. Also, Eclipse Phase, the game setting that I just played. Oh, there's Which, a Martian revolution? Or in your specific game? Um, or there in was the setting one material. in the setting that I, I recently played, which I don't think is published yet, but oh. I believe will be forthcoming from writer Andy Click, who Ooh. ran... Uh, I, I was in his first big real test group for it, and it was fantastic. And yeah, phase it was absolutely awesome. awesome setting. There's that video yeah. game, too, right? The, um, I think there's a video game, too, that's about... Uh, a revolution on Mars. Anyway, I, I, I just there's just no way for it not to be cool. It's impossible. Is is Ghosts of Mars on there? Ghosts of Mars does not include a revolution on Mars, Timothy. Okay, I didn't know. I've never seen it. <laughs> it's it on Mars. Mars in the title. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Now I feel like an important point about what they're doing is like the elevator, for example, was started by uh, some weird Martian sounds, and that seems to be the way that everything that they're interacting with down here goes. So they have this guide guide taking them through, but it's not um it's not something that they could do on their own. Right. That's true. Yeah. So yeah, so th- these guys, these taller than normal Ahis lead them um through I mean they don't, it's not a full they get a full tour later, but they like lead them yeah. into a strange chamber that seems kind of abandoned and it can only be opened as Ruth just said by by like whispering some sort of strange intonation. And they go into another chamber. The chamber was small but lofty, its roof rising like the interior of a spire. Its floor and walls were stained by the bloody violet beams of single hemisphere far up in the narrowing dome. The place was vacant, and furnished only with a curious tripod of black metal fixed in the center of the floor. The tripod bore an oval block of crystal. And from this block, as if from a frozen pool, a frozen flower lifted, opening petals of smooth, heavy ivory that received a rosy tinge from the strange light. Block, flower, tripod, it seemed, were the parts of a piece of sculpture. Crossing the threshold, the Earthmen became instantly aware that the throbbing thunders and cave reverberant clangors had ebbed away in profound silence. It was as if they had entered a sanctuary from which all sound was excluded by a mystic barrier. Their guide, apparently, had withdrawn. But somehow, they felt that they were not alone, 
and it seemed that hidden eyes were peering upon them from the blank walls. Perturbed and puzzled, they stared at the pale flower, noting thin, seven tongue-like petals that curled softly outward from a perforated heart like a small censer. Chandler began to wonder if it were really carving, or an actual flower that had been mineralized through Martian chemistry. Then, startlingly, a voice appeared to issue from the blossom, a voice incredibly sweet, clear and sonorous, whose tones perfectly articulate were neither those of Ihai or Earthman. I speak as said the voice. Be not surprised or frightened. It is my desire to befriend you and return to consideration. Uh, so it's a creepy flower. Yeah, it's a creepy flower. <laughs> they find a creepy flower. So before he tells them what he wants from them, he gives us a bit of an exposition dump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, he's not a god. He's yeah, got to so, give us context. Yeah, he's not a god. He's an alien. And he came from his homeworld, which he doesn't name, mm-hmm. traveled by an ether, ether ship, like you do. Right. And he landed on Mars. Kind of crashed. Yeah, let's call it. Let's call it a crash. Yeah, while the Earth ancestors were still blood brothers of the ape. Right. Yeah, and I'm thinking like that. This point is kind of like Roswell. That's totally where my brain went with this. <laughs> I've I've never seen Roswell. Yeah, but way not way Ro- before not that Roswell. Roswell. Oh, like the event like actual Area 51. Yeah. Yeah, but way before. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Okay, then I'm a Well, murder. maybe this is, maybe maybe Roswell is actually what happened anyway. Wait, did a giant plant land in Roswell? Is that what what do you know? He's not a plant. What do you know? What do you He's know? He's a thing. We don't actually know what he looks like. Well, kind of. Anyway. <clears throat> anyway, though Volthoom <laughs> is totally harmless. Totally harmless, yeah, dude. Totally. The surface dwellers of Mars think he's, they basically think he's like the Martian devil. Right. right. That's so they, how he's been set up, yeah. Yeah, the Martian devil. So, long story short, he's been there for a long time. He has. Why these... do they think he's the devil? Uh, he doesn't answer that. Yeah, he doesn't answer that. Uh, I'm assuming it has something to do with the torture that he may or may not propagate later <laughs> on in the mo- in the in the movie in the story. Um, <laughs> True. So he wants to go to Earth because he's sick of this Mars stuff. He's sick of being called the devil, dudes. He's not the devil. He's just you know misunderstood. Yeah. And he wants Haynes and Chandler to be his proselytizers on Earth. Right, to get right. some um, other acolytes that'll help take care of him and hang out with him. He's yeah. tired he's like, of being guys, underground. Your money problems are over. More than I mean, that, though, go he's going to gonna reward them with longevity, and mm-hmm. he's got this great flower that will get them wicked high. Yes. <laughs> wicked high. <laughs> and he, he has this weird, because he's an alien, not a deity, he has this weird sleep cycle where he, he'll sleep for like almost a thousand years at a, at a go, and all of his other people can sleep with him. And so they get to be awake for like a thousand years and then like right. sleep for a thousand years. And it's a pretty sweet deal. And he's he's not the flower that they're seeing. No. The flower that they're seeing is the psychotropic thing that he's offering to them. Right. And I feel like at this point, it really feels a lot like the, the planetary entity. Oh, yeah. For or sure. Seedlings From, of Mars, uh, rather. Seedlings, yeah. Because yep. yeah, it's like, definitely. here, take me to Earth. <clears throat> they're probably cousins. 
And I actually kind of, I kind of retcon it as the seedlings of Mars, seedling of Mars happen is what happens when these guys, well, they're not quite as keen on it as uh, some of the people in that story are. Um, yeah, totally. And this, if this guy, well, we'll save it to the end. Yeah. So he's like, let me prove to you that I have this crazy trippy drug thing. And I guess to release it, he has to like heat the room up. So the room starts to get warm, which I thought was kind of a cool detail. It seemed to Chandler all at once that the perfume was no longer wholly alien to him, but was something that he had remembered from other times and places. He tried to recall the circumstances of this prior familiarity, and his recollections, drawn up as if from the sealed reservoirs of an old existence, took the form of an actual scene that replaced the cavern chamber about him. Haynes was no part of this scene, but had disappeared from his ken and the roof and walls had vanished, giving place to an open forest of fern-like trees. Their slim, pearly boles and tender frondage swam in a luminous glory, like an Eden filled with a primal daybreak. The trees were tall, but taller still than they were the flowers that poured down from waving censers of carnal white and overwhelming and voluptuous perfume. It seemed that he had gone back to the fountains of time in the first world, and had drawn into himself inexhaustible life, youth, and vigor from the glorious light and fragrance that had steeped his senses to their last nerve. The ecstasy heightened, and he heard a singing that appeared to emanate from the mouths of the blossoms, a singing as of horries that turned his blood to a golden filter brew. In the delirium of his faculties, the sound was identified with the blossoms' odor. It rose in giddying rapture insuppressible, and he thought that the very flowers soared like flames, and the trees aspired toward them, and he himself was a blown fire that towered with the singing to attain some ultimate pinnacle of delight. The whole world swept upward in a tide of exultation, and it seemed that the singing turned to articulate sound, and Chandler heard the words, I am and thou art time from the beginning of worlds, and thou shalt be mine until the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Yep. <laughs> I dig the Martian Devil. He just wants yeah. everyone to be groovy and get yeah. stoned and stuff. It's it's all cool, you know. Eternal life. That's not yeah. a bad deal. So they're gonna do it, right? No, they, well, it's they weird. They hem and haw. They hem and haw, but they assume, so so this trip happens, right? And then they, they wake up and they're like in some other area of the mm-hmm. of the complex. And they assume that if they don't help Valthum, they'll be killed. Valthum hasn't right. said as much, but it's been heavily implied that they won't like the consequences if they don't take the deal. But they basically decide they're n- that they're not going to do it, or they're still sort of like, we don't want to do it at this point. They haven't yeah. really, yeah. And then this great uh, Clark Ashton Smithian side character shows up, who is an Ahai named mm-hmm. Tavo Shai. Yep. <laughs> who just brings them food and like wants to show them around it. Yep. Yep. He he, says it's you the can will go of all food. Anywhere you want, but um, I can totally be your guide if you need a guide. And they say, okay, cool. Yeah, tell us about this place. What is this place like, Tim? I almost had another reading here when they get a tour of this place, but I decided that was too many readings. So it's pretty amazing, though, this whole Yeah, scene. it is. It's the will of Volthum that they are, that they should be allowed to wander throughout Revormos, the Martian underworld, and kind of see the sights. So they do that. Uh, Tavo Shai 
brings them around and they go through a garden and the garden is beautiful. Uh, there's a lofty roof. Uh, there's weird plants and blossoms that they had never seen before. They're completely exotic. Um, Doesn't Volthoom like chip in and go, oh, by the way, I brought those with me. Oh, maybe later or before that. Oh, it might be later. Yeah. But it's so. not while they're exploring. Okay. Yeah. And there's cruciform trees. <laughs> it's just, it's really awesome. So the garden's really awesome. And then they go, uh, they enter a quote unquote world of open passages and chambered caverns. And they're filled with machinery and storage vats and urns and ingots of precious and semi-precious metals. And Which is... they kind of feel like they're being tempted. And those miners, you know, totally would have loved to. They totally went down the oh, wrong passageway. There's yeah, totally people doing science and having labs. Yep. And, yeah, yeah. A... and then they hear there's the, the clangor of, uh, of metal pulses. And then they climb a flight of stairs that are... These giant stairs, uh, he describes them as being as big as the Pyramid of Cheops to a higher level. And then they, well, they're building a ship. There's a big, like, I guess like a foundry. And they're looking down on it. And they see the, because they, they find out, I don't know if it was before that or after this, but they find out that these Ihais are like an ancient stock of Ihais right. that were there when Volthum first crashed on Earth. So they're they've just been serving like, him ever since. Yeah, for millennia. So they're building this ether ship. And while they were there they found these interesting bottles of sleep gas, which Volthum uses oh, yes. to uh keep his followers asleep for a thousand years at a time because right. while Volthum's cycles can can do this to get the I the Ihais to uh follow suit, you have to dose them so they just keep all of these on storage and they, they're not going to need them for a while yet but they have them around bottles of sleep so oh, uh, oh yeah they see a river well do we want to yeah, talk they about the river yeah they see a bit like, like a like a overlook that looks down into what seems to be a subterranean river and they think to themselves hmm maybe that could get us out of here they also learn however that when the ship that everybody's building off takes off for earth it will use atomic disintegrators and it will incinerate <laughs> old ignar as it goes which is awesome just an atomic disintegrator ether ship yep. no big deal <laughs> well you gotta blast through the core somewhere did either of you guys read the star wars uh rogue squadron and wraith squadron books no. This nope. made me think of the Lusankia, which I'm going to say it was they were written in the 90s. It's not going to be spoilers, but a guy uh, there was this Imperial Star Destroyer built upside down in Coruscant. And it just runs there for years on reverse gravity, and everybody who's on it thinks that they're like in space and shit. And then it turns out that it's actually like under Coruscant and at some point, somebody blasts it off um, because it, the secret is discovered and people escape to the surface. And so it blasts off and it just takes out a huge chunk of the planet as it goes. That's really it's, crazy. It's an amazing moment where like these people who've been imprisoned for all this time think that they're on a prison planet, maybe, or they think they're on a prison, prison starship. They can't tell. And suddenly they discover that they've been on the capital planet of the New Republic the entire time that they've been in Imperial God. custody. That was back blowing. when you can tell good stories with Star Wars. Yeah, that was that was definitely a, a great moment in Star Wars. Anyway, not unlike this. So I, I kind of picture it blasting <laughs> out the same way that an Imperial Star Destroyer would blast out a Coruscant, which is badass. Continue. 
So, having seen the riverbed, our heroes are like, you know what? Screw Valthum. We're going to go to that river and we're going to get out of here because we don't want to take this Martian scientist devil to Earth. Because who knows what he's going to do. Right. And e even if we did know what he was going to do, when he takes off, he's going to destroy old Ignar and we can't have that. Right. Um, so they sneak through all the areas I've just seen. And it's surprisingly easy to sneak around. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody's really around. Nobody wants to stop them. They get down to this riverbed. And they make it, like, pretty far until they see a light up ahead of them, which they think is maybe the exit. But, hey, guess what? It's not the exit. What it's, is it? Well, it's... <laughs> Valthum, <laughs> like... <laughs> do they, they hear his voice, right? Yeah. Yeah. They hear his voice, and he's like, surprise! Go back as you came, old earthlings. Yeah. You're not, not may leave Rav Morvos <laughs> without my knowledge or against my will. Behold! I have sent my guardians to escort you. What are his guardians, Tim? Oh, they're just two giant dragons. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty fantastic creature hybrid yeah. types. They're yeah, triple and they look like oh, They are so true. <laughs> like, yeah. He Somebody describes them as looking like Chinese dragons. Mm -hmm. So they're like these big, wormy, light, glowing dragons. They're the height of giraffes with shortage legs. They have spiral and, necks. And Chandler says, my god, these monsters are supernatural. Yeah, yeah, they're but, not sure it's not like a television or something. Yeah, which yeah. like, me. this must be some kind of television. <laughs> right. So we know what a television is, Clark Ashton Smith. I mean, well, he you doesn't. do, but... <laughs> No, no, he doesn't. I think he's talking about like a like uh, he's using it like a literal old, television, like a literal. Yeah. It's a it's a vision that's being tele -set broadcast. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and they they have a club. Yeah, he tries to throw a rock chunk at the yeah, thing. Yeah, that works well. Turns out that they're not television; <laughs> they're actually dragons. It's not TV; it's dragons. <laughs> <laughs> and then two more of them show up. Yep. Half swooning, the Earthmen were dimly aware of a change in the menacing chimeras. The flaming bodies dulled and shrank and darkened. The heat lessened. The fires died down in the mouths and eye pits. At the same time, the creatures drew closer, fawning loathsomely and revealing whitish tongues and eyeballs of jet. The tongues seemed to divide. They grew paler. They were like flower petals that Haynes and Chandler had seen somewhere. The breath of the chimeras, like a soft gale, was upon the faces of the Earthmen, and the breath was a cool and spicy perfume that they had known before, the narcotic perfume that had overcome them following their audience with the hidden master of Ravermos. Moment by moment, the monsters turned to prodigious blossoms. The pillars of the gallery became gigantic trees in a glamour of primal dawn. The thunders of the pit were lulled to a far-off sigh, as of gentle seas on Edenic shores. The teeming terrors of Ravermos, the threat of a shadowy doom, were as things that had never been. Haynes and Chandler, oblivious, were lost in the paradise of the unknown drug. So what happens? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they just get them back far enough, and then... The, maybe the, I'm thinking that maybe the the uh, dragon beasts actually breathe out this heated flowery odor thing. I think that the dragon beasts are some kind of projection. They're not real. 
but the, the, they're they're another part of this whole psychedelic thing that that Volthoom can do. It can kind of create visions. I don't. I just found this passage super weird because it's yeah. like, oh, it is. See, I think I see him as just going bendy once they get dosed with the with the the drug, and they're like, oh, wait, are right. those even real? Yeah. Maybe, but I guess, like, what what doses them, right? Um, I was thinking that the breath of these things has the uh, has has the flowery odor in it. Well, we might never know because they're clearly too loopy to figure it out themselves. <laughs> that they are. Haynes wakes up after getting dosed, and Chandler is gone, and he goes looking around for him, and then he kind of finds him. Mm-hmm. He finds like a hologram of him, and he says, uh. I'll read his dialogue. Hello, Bob. This is my first televisual appearance in tri-dimensional form. Pretty good, <laughs> isn't it? I'm in the private laboratory of Volthum, and Volthum has persuaded me to accept his proposition. So uh, Chandler kind of goes turncoat on him, and he's like, hey, this is really awesome. Well, they're offering him a million dollars. I mean, what are you going to do? It's a specific number that Volthum has now rolled out. It's yeah. like... Not just a lot of money. I'm going to give you a million dollars. Each. Each. Yeah. <laughs> no taxes on a Volthoom donation like that. That's <laughs> nope. tax-free. Yeah. That's yours to do with as to you take, wish. Take home to earth with me in your back pocket. <laughs> Haynes ain't having it, though. Nope. What What detail does he remember, Tim? He remembers. He's like, how do I, what do I do here? Like, I'm vastly outnumbered. Uh, my my only friend has just gone to the other side. What recourse do I have now? And then he remembers, oh yeah, the sleepy bottle. Yeah. <laughs> if I break those sleepy bottles, everybody goes back to sleep and Volthoom can either stay awake while all of his buddies go to sleep or he can just go to sleep too. But Haynes also knows that he's sacrificing his own life to do that. Right. Because he's not infused with the Volthoom life force so he won't survive and so i mean he he's they're allowed free reign and volthum totally doesn't catch on to what he's going to be doing so he smashes that sleepy bottle yeah he smashes him and it takes him a few tries yeah but Uh, he does it it, and and the whole place starts to go to sleep and then he just kind of runs right he doesn't Uh uh-huh He's just like, bah! (laughs) (laughs) And that goes uh, well for him, of course. Yeah, he runs around with no particular goal in mind. I mean, I'm assuming it's a vague sense of escape. And then he uh, just sort of winds up in the chamber, the original chamber where they saw the flower the first time. And Tavushai is there. Yeah. uh, As is Chandler, who who has lashed to a rack-like frame. Yep. Uh, so that's doesn't seem like the decision that a free man would make. Right. No. Just saying. <laughs> um, and next to Talvashai is a thing that leads us into the end of the story, which I just took all of, so it's a long reading. But we should just do it, because mm-hmm. it's awesome. The thing was like a gigantic plant, with innumerable roots, pale and swollen, that ramified from a bulbular hole. This bowl, half-hidden from view, was topped with a vermilion cup like a monstrous blossom, and from the cup there grew an elfin figure, pearly-hued and formed with exquisite beauty and symmetry, a figure that turned its Lilliputian face toward Haynes and spoke in the sounding voice of Volthoom. 
To Haynes, the voice was like a far-off thunder heard by one who was half asleep. With halting effort, lurching as if he were about to fall, he made his way toward Chandler. I smashed the bottles. Haynes heard his own voice with a feeling of drowsy unreality. It seemed the only thing to do since you had gone over to Fulton. But I hadn't consented. Chandler replied slowly. It was all a deception. To trick you into consenting. And they were torturing me because I wouldn't give in. Chandler's voice trailed away. Haynes, laboriously trying to comprehend through his own drowsiness, perceived an evil-looking instrument, like a many-pointed metal goad which drooped from the fingers of Tavoche. From the arc of needle-like tips there fell a ceaseless torrent of electric sparks. The bosom of Chandler's shirt had been torn open and his skin was stippled with tiny blue-black marks from chin to diaphragm, marks that formed a diabolic pattern. Haynes felt a vague, unreal horror. Through the lethe that closed upon his senses more and more, he became aware that Volthum had spoken, and after an interval it seemed that he understood the meaning of the words. All my methods of persuasion have failed, but it matters little. I shall yield myself to slumber, though I could remain awake if I wished to find the gases through my superior science and might power. We shall all sleep soundly, and a thousand are no more than a single night to my followers and me, for you, whose life term is so brief, they will become eternity. Soon I shall awaken and resume my plans of conquest, and you who dare to interfere will lie beside me then as you do dust, and the dust The voice ended, and it seemed that the elfin being began to nod in the monstrous vermilion cup. Haynes and Chandler saw each other with growing, wavering dimness, as if through a grey mist that had risen between them. There was silence everywhere, as if the Tartarian engineries had fallen still, and the Titans had ceased their labor. Chandler relaxed on the torture frame, and his eyelids drooped. Haynes tottered, fell, and lay motionless. Tarvoche, still clutching his sinister instrument, reposed like a mummified giant. Slumber, like a silent sea, had filled the caverns of Ravenloss. I mean, <laughs> that's... I love it. They kind of it's defeat good. the bad guy. Kind they do of. for a millennia. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like they turn him into a somebody else's problem issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they do. <laughs> it's good. And I love how weird Volthum is. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, you can always count on Smith for a weird monster, but like a little elf dude who lives in a plant. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, I really do think, though, that he somehow spawns into the planetary entity or the seedling of yeah, Mars. Right. Like They might be cousins. I think that when Volthoom finally gets to Earth, he's going to be really embarrassed because the, the planetary ent- entity is going to be there. Oh, <laughs> awkward God, turtle. Damn it. But Volthoom, I wanted to mention that Volthoom is also, ha- has also been appropriated into DC Comics' Green Lantern universe. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same Volthoom, but there are uh, some strange similarities in the Green Lantern mythology, he's uh, a, an entity that can control all of the different spectrums. They call it the emotional spectrum in Green Lantern. And it's, you know, green is willpower, yellow is fear, red is rage, violet is whatever, lust. So this, this one thing can control all of those things, and that's Volthoom. And he was like the first... He was the creature that inspired the Guardians of the Galaxy, those little blue elf creatures, to create the Green Lanterns. He was their inspiration, and he was the first lantern. And really? Then, I don't know what happened. Yeah. Weird. Uh, but that's all modern stuff. In the original, in the 60s, the first mention of him was through their, in Earth 2, which was the alternate version of the DC Comics Earth where the good guys were all bad guys, the crime syndicate of America instead of the Justice League of America. And there was a character that was the analog to Green Lantern named Power Ring, and his ring was given to him by a monk named Volthoom. Weird. That's why I think Volthoom's dragon creatures are hallucinations or illusions. The same thing he did with uh, Chandler, where he created an illusion of him. Hmm. Right. It could be. Yeah, and I... Speaking of television, did you know that St. Clair is the patron saint of television? No. St. Clair of Assisi, because apparently um, she, oh, I don't remember which one was performing the mass, but a mass was being performed with St. Francis, and she couldn't be there. And so either, like, she showed up as a hologram kind of thing Uh to the mass, or St. Francis showed up to her because she was too sick to attend. And so, speaking of television and such... I don't know how yeah. much it was used in uh, sci-fi of those days, but it was totally a totally a conceit dating back to the days of St. Francis and Claire. That's cool. Anything else to add about Volthoom? <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I really liked this story. Um, I, I liked all the potential that he set up up in Ignar. Yeah. I liked this whole idea of an underground civilization that has a, a tie to the surface with this elevator. So it's not just, it's not tunnels, it's not blind things that need their eyes eaten out or everything. No, they're totally functional, thousands of year old guys. And they found random earthlings that, because he's in need of earthlings. And so it holds together pretty well for me, despite all the psychedelic issues. (laughs) Ruth hates the psychedelia. Um, I I just like answers. (laughs) Uh, if if the Mars cycle were just this and Yovamis, I would I would be pretty excited. I mean, Seedling of Mars is a, is a fun story, but it's not a great story. This is pretty great, I think. Yeah, I just love yeah. the idea of like a Martian science devil. I think mm-hmm. is pretty yeah. awesome. Right? Who's like who will eventually win? Yeah, who may eventually become a science Earth devil? Who knows? 
it makes me wish that he had done more and more stories to like sort of flesh out Ignar and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, but hey, Alas, you know. that wasn't his way. <laughs> no, it was, not, it was not his way. So next up, we've got just two stories, the Mald Web stories, Mald Web being an enchanter. So the maze of the enchanter or the maze of Mald Web and then the flower women. That definitely back to our sorcerer. I mean, we haven't had any good necromancer action in a while, so I'm pretty no excited while. about that. Yeah. It's time to get back into necromancy. It's time to get necromantic. Necromance is in the air. <laughs> I know we haven't made that joke in like probably almost a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's coming up, listeners. Hope you weren't sick of it. <laughs> it's back. Because you see, neck never mind. <laughs> <laughs> necromancy never dies. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth out. Okay. So uh, that was Volthoom. And that was by Mars. Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah, and that end and so ends the Mars setting. So ends the Mars setting. Tune in next time for wait for it. I'm trying to remember which of the two, if it's the maze of Moldweb or All Hail Volthoom. All hail Volthoom. The maze of the maze of Moldweb. All hail Volthoom. <laughs> All hail Volthoom. All hail Volthoom. Well, 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 uh, I'm talking about that old double shadow. Now that's a podcast. Exploring the weird fiction of Clark Dash and Smith. I dig the Martian Devil.